My favorite part of the service when the pastor gets up to preach and a good portion leaves. Was it something I said? Let's have another round of applause for our band and our choir today. What an incredible job. This is an odd event because you know, this wasn't my idea and I wasn't in charge of it. So it's kind of hard for me to know what to do during all this planning. But Colby and Terry and Margie McMakin, who I think is in the gym, did a lot of this planning. And so thank them when you see them. And uh, they really put this together. So, and other people as well. I'm not going to name a bunch of names because I'll forget. But, but about the second or third week, 10 years ago, I was here as pastor. I was shaking hands after the 8.30 service right there during that doorway. And there was a man that many of you knew by the name of John Gentry. You all remember Mr. John? He's, he's gone on to be with the Lord. And he used to sit right back there on his back pews. And he came up to me and shook my hand. And, and, and he said, well, he, he called me Charles. And he said, Charles? Uh, I said, yes, sir. He said, have you picked out your gravestone yet? <laughs> and I thought, gosh, I mean... The honeymoon period's already over. They're thinking about killing me. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, have you picked out your, your gravestone up at St. John's yet? Because you're going to retire here. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I said, oh, that makes me feel better. And I, of course, you know, I was 34 at the time. I'm thinking, retire? I'm not, that's not even on my radar. Uh, but now I'm, you know, every day I'm, I'm one day closer to that. And, uh, and if I didn't already have some plots uh, paid for me down in Charleston, then I probably would have done that by now. So when Jesus comes back, y'all will be coming out of the grave there in Panopolis, and I'll be floating down the, the Ashley River probably. So anyhow. But, you know, I did some calculations. And if, for some of you who have been here since the first day I was here, if you've been here most Sundays, you have heard me preach over 450 times. That, I don't want to hear myself talk that much, let alone that, right? And some even more. And poor Dr. Bob in the media room has edited all of them and, uh, and, and still editing them. And I went back and watched a, f a few minutes of the very first sermon that I preached on September 1st, uh, 2013. And one thing is very clear from watching that, I am not the same person I was 10 years ago. Uh, I am in a lot of different ways, and maybe that's why some people have left, and maybe that's why some of you are still here. I don't know. But the fact that you're here and that I'm here is a testimony of God's grace. And we've had a great worship service today, and I'm thankful for this day. And when the leadership asked me if I wanted to preach, I thought, that might be a little awkward. Probably not, but I have someone who I want to preach, and it's my youth pastor uh, named Don Allensworth, who I'm about to bring up in a minute. He was my youth pastor at my church in Columbia growing up. An extremely important time in my life in 11th and 12th grade, uh, especially, which were very spiritually formative years for me. And what Don will not tell you is that I am just one of many, many students who have come under his ministry who are now in full-time ministry. That's the kind of influence he had. And, and after I was here just a few months, uh, like two or three months, uh, the youth pastor that I had, he uh, took a job for another church, and he moved on to another church. And, and I was really stressed out because I'd been there two months, and now I have to make this important staff hire of a new youth pastor. So I collected a bunch of resumes. I looked through all of them, and I was just real frustrated. And, and I turned to Don, and I said, Don, you know, you know me. 
if I give you this pile of 50 resumes, can, can, can you look through and find three to five that you know would work well with me, that I would like, and they would like to work for me? Can you just kind of pick that out? And he's like, of course I can, right? And so I gave him a, a, a pile of them, and he sent me about two or three resumes, and Colby was one on those resumes. And yeah, go ahead and clap for Colby. And I did a little uh, Zoom call with him and his wife, and immediately I said, oh, yeah, this is our guy. And so Don Allensworth is more influential in this church and building this church for God's kingdom than you would ever know, right? And so I know you're going to enjoy Don as he comes up here. So let's have a round of applause for Don. Come on up, Don. Love you, brother. I do want to clarify that I was uh, not that much older than him, <laughs> as is youth pastor, and I uh, just want to go on record with that. It is a joy to be here today. Can you imagine being a youth pastor and having a student who has been so faithful and so loving and so kind and generous for the kingdom and, and so honorable? Um, you and Emily deserve, family and moms and dads deserve everything that you're going to get today and, and that love and adoration amazing amazing thing i get to travel and work with churches uh weekly uh around the country and around the world for that matter and it's a very rare thing to have a a pastor in this day and time and a family invested uh in 10 years in in one place it's an amazing thing uh so god bless y'all for putting up with him but but for y'all because it's our family right it is a it's a it's a tough thing sometimes I, I am grateful to be here today. Today I picked a, a passage of scripture specifically uh, based on who, in my opinion, uh, Charlie is, how he embodies this scripture and how he, he leads. Um, he's literally, the lifestyle that he lives and the traits that he possesses, again, we've known him for 25 years, uh, been a part of a lot of critical uh, times in life, uh, a lot of decisions, some surprises. And, uh, but, but God has just been faithful and I, I count it joy to, to call you my friend and my pastor. I was your pastor for a couple years. You've been my pastor a lot longer than that. So I'm grateful for you because, of, because of, um, because of who you are, I, I want to say I'm proud of the life. I'm proud of how you love your wife. I'm proud of how you love your children. Uh, proud of how you honor your parents. I'm proud of the love you have for this church and the church as a whole. I'm proud of the, of, the, of the fight that you have in you when things aren't going well kingdom-wise, not just here but in, in the church as a whole. Uh, but I'm really proud of the love that you have for Jesus. Uh, but I'm proud to call you friend and, and my pastor. So today we're going to be in the, in the book of James, um, uh, you know, and, and we're going to kind of set the stage for that for just a few minutes. James is very much like Old Testament wisdom literature, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, in its structure and the, and the flow, it's considered by many to be um, biblical wisdom literature, even though it's not included in the, in the Old Testament. It, it includes more imperatives, more commands per word than any other New Testament book. Uh, for these reasons, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. So there's a lot there. James was likely the first New Testament book written. It's a capstone of the Old Testament book, so it kind of canonizes those, and therefore is very relevant to wisdom literature. It was written to the Jews. It's not high theology. It's super practical. 
I love the book of James. It's, it's incredibly practical. You don't have to have a, a super high IQ or be a theologian to really dig into it and to understand it. Uh, but to set the stage for this, let's look at some, uh, some knowns about wisdom literature. Number one, it's directed to the individual rather than the nation. So often, God, so God takes the wisdom literature to build a society which reflects God's will for humankind was from the individual up. So wisdom literature starts with the individual, with you and me, and it, and it goes out from there to build society that way. But when we look at the law and prophecy books, they tended to work corporately from the nation down. So it started with the nation, the call of the nation to saturate down to the individuals. That makes sense? So it's just a, a reverse of, of what, we, what we see sometimes. Um, it focuses on God as creator. Wisdom literature focuses on God as creator rather than God as redeemer. Uh, it, it, wisdom literature never ref references historical events. That would be too circumstantial in, in this case, but rather describes God as the creator of the world. So we know that James looks at wisdom from an Old Testament Jewish and a very practical perspective, which means God has his part and I have my part. And so this book is written not for salvation, but for daily life, for how one should live and go about their daily lives. So it's that practical. How to live with this ongoing commitment. This is where the wisdom is. This is where faith comes in, which we sang about all these things. This is where joy comes. And these are the works as a result. This is how faith really and truly works. If there's one scripture which suggests the overview of the book of James, it's uh, James 2.8. But some will say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the Bible's clear. We know this. We are to be people of faith. It's also clear that we are to be people who demonstrate our faith by our works. Faith is an active word. It is not a passive word. It's, it's, we are to live strong and courageous in our daily lives. That's part of what this faith is. But the Bible doesn't really clearly define faith in any place. It does, it does allow us to have a description in Hebrews 11.1, 1. we know that. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if we're to be people of faith, and we're called to live in this faith and to develop this faith, and we understand that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things not seen, then we must understand that uncertainty is a condition for faith. Think about that for a minute. Uncertainty is a condition for faith. Faith is not faith if we know the outcome of it. There's got to be some level of uncertainty there in order for faith to exist. And yet we know in the world that we live in today, sin competes with faith, right? We have a very real issue in our post-truth society. We're living in days without truth. There's no right and wrong. There's no, there's no, there's no truth. It's, it's what one believes. My truth, your truth, truth is truth. But in our society, we live in a post-truth society, and you can identify with whatever you want to identify with. So to see someone, to see a church, to see a church invest in a community, to have staying power, to stay the course, that is, that, that, that's countercultural. And that's where we have to be today because of the culture that we live in. As people, we're masters at justifying our sin. We get that. We say things like, oh, it just feels right. And let me say this. You can't trust your feelings if you're not trusting in the Word of God. Because so often... Even in, in, a, in a godly life, even in a life well-lived, how I feel and what truth is may be at opposing sides. And so we've got to focus on the identifying with what the Word of God says. Don't trust your feelings if you're not trusting God's Word. It becomes more challenging 
uh, as we get deeper and deeper into a post-truth culture. Contrary to what one may think, the opposite of faith is not fear. The opposite of faith is certainty. And what we're seeking as human beings, at least men, I can't speak for women. I've learned that a long time ago, nearly 33 years ago. We're seeking, we're seeking certainty. We want a sure thing. And yet we crave this. And we know that that is the opposite of faith. Living by faith is challenging at times. We get that. And to be honest with you, none of us really want to choose to live by faith. And yet, as Christ followers, we want to live by faith. So that's the contradiction in terms of, of self and sacrifice to the Lord. James opens this letter and introduces the major themes of this letter in the first 18 verses. Now, we don't have time to get nearly into all of that, but I would challenge you to dig into James if you haven't been there in a while. So today we're going to start, and we're going to start with uh, James 1, 2 through 12, uh, and we're going to start with uh, verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now James has a little different point of view of joy than most of us. The Bible uses this word steadfast, and it means firm and unwavering. James says that a follower of Jesus, that for a follower of Jesus, joy is not to be set on the shelf, tucked away, and just used on, a, on the easy days, accessed when things are, are going really well. 18 days ago, we had our first granddaughter. It's really cool, right? Yeah, how about that? Incredible joy in that moment. 20 days ago, I was struggling to find joy. I was concerned. It was, a, it, was a, it was a rough few days for my daughter-in-law and for my granddaughter and for my son, our family. And so, so often, it's easy to choose joy when everything is great. But, but the challenge is to choose joy in all circumstances. Don't let bad James is also saying, don't let bad habits lead you to a reactive state. Uh, James says joy should be demonstrated in good times and in bad. It should be demonstrated when everything is great and when your world appears to be falling apart. Consider it pure joy, James writes in verse 2, whenever you face trials of many kinds. About 25 years ago, I, studied, I began studying delight and, and contentment and joy, and it's a pretty interesting study. I spent three months on that area, and what I've discovered was that contentment is a choice, but joy is God-given. And, and James says, count it joy. But in order to count it joy, I, I, I have to sacrifice something. I have to choose to be content in, in my circumstances, in good and bad, and not let my circumstances get in the way of the joy. James realizes in times of trials that God's people often do lack his wisdom and how to endure this. And so he gets us, gives us verses 5 through 8, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But again, it's not about the trials. What it's about is how the trials, will, what they will ultimately do for us. And he says, perfect in completion and, and to be perfect and complete is to grow in the, likeliness, in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be running from these trials and, 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 and tribulations. When we're brand new Christians, our faith, is, our faith is genuine. We have a genuine faith. Now it's untested and it's untried. And so what happens is it, it, our faith is as innocent as possible, but it's pure. But as, as faith is tried and tested, it deepens and matures. Do you know what I'm talking about? You grow stronger. You become more bold. And we understand God's faithfulness. And the more we can understand God's faithfulness, 
the more bold we can stand in our faith of him. But part of that process is trials and tribulations. It's really important. If we want to develop this boldness of faith, we can't run from these opportunities. Untried faith is really just theory on our part. Untested faith is theory on our part. Now, I hate to travel. It's one of the things that I detest the most. Somebody that knows me for a few months may be shocked to find that out. Others that know me well know that pastor knows I hate to travel. You know, I, I work with churches around the country, around the world, and last year, I think I flew 222,000 miles in the United States didn't, without leaving the country. I hate to get on a plane. I, I'm scared to death to get on an airplane. Absolutely scared to death. Had a bad experience, you know, uh, February 13th, 2007 at 8.22 p.m. Not that I remember the date and time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it involved a, an emergency landing in Charlotte and people getting carried off the plane. Like, it was, it, was, it was a thing. And I was fine for a few months or even probably a couple of years. But then something started happening. And so for me, it is a, it is a trial for me to get on a plane. It, it is. And it's one of those things that, um, that I have to set aside. It tests my faith every single time. I have to set aside my fear in order to get on a plane, to honor my family, to, to honor the, the Lord. But let me tell you this about my travel. The more I travel, the more people I leave to the Lord. Unequivocally. Uber, Lyft, I, ne I never rent a car anymore. I, last year, I led more people to the Lord last year than I have in the last five years combined. And, and when I don't travel, I don't share Christ nearly as much. Part of, what I, part of that... Part of that testing in my faith, part of that is the maturing in my faith is, is to understand I'm traveling for a reason, to help put courage in pastors and churches to reach out. And if I'm not living that life as I go, then what value do I have to the church when I arrive? I, as I go is my arrival. Does that make sense? The very thing that I'm most afraid of in the world is how God leverages my giftedness. It is amazing. COVID nearly killed me because I was, I was rarely in the back of an Uber or Lyft. I've led more people to the Lord in the back of an Uber or a Lyft than I have preaching in years. It's as we go. It's how we demonstrate our faith. So if we look back, we look back at this word steadfastness because that's really an important uh, word here. The Greek word Hapomene means patience, endurance, fortitude, perseverance. The verb means to remain behind, to stand one ground, to survive, to remain steadfast, to persevere. It literally means, to, to, when, when he says steadfast, he literally means lock your ankles in and just face forward. Don't be swayed by your fears, by the winds, by the seas around you. Don't be, by, by your circumstances, don't be swayed by that. Face forward, lock your ankles in, stand firm on what you know to be true. And truth is truth. Truth is not my truth. Truth is truth. Trials and temptations build a maturity and completeness in us. Steadfastness must finish its work so that you may become mature, perfect, complete, not lacking for anything. If we, if we pull this out of the Greek, here's what it says. Having attained the end purpose, complete, perfect, 
When people use it, this, this term, it means full-grown, mature, adult, to be perfect, fully developed in a moral sense, to be honed in, to have everything knocked away, to be focused on who you are. Then we, when we look at this, the second word, this, this second word, this whole charis word, is a qualitative term, which means with integrity, whole, complete, undamaged, intact, and blameless. Put it together, it refers to a person of faith, full-grown, matured with integrity, whole and complete, undamaged and intact, without blame. They are not living for themselves, they're living for others, for the Lord himself. So how do we get to this steadfastness? How do we attain this perfection that, that, that James is talking about? This moral per- perfection, this, this true north. Well, the key to it is found in uh, verses 5 through 8. And the key to it is wisdom. So verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him stop. Let, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So literally, if any of you lack wisdom, we, need to, we understand that if means since. So what he's saying is, since you all lack wisdom, because we all do, as believers we're gifted with a lot of things, but we are created with a deficiency in our character. This deficiency, and it's a great one, is wisdom. Wisdom cannot be attained in that regard. Wisdom comes in the context of need. It, it's, it's, it's part of it. It's, it. Wisdom, the very nature of it, is specific to the situation and circumstances, only from God. Now, we can, we can have people in our lives that, that have wise counsel, but that goes back to the original wisdom literature is not about historical events. It's about, it's about you and where you are today. Because if it were about historical events, it could be easily misunderstood that I must do what he did or what she did in order to have what they had. And the fact of the matter is, no, we are to surrender to the Lord and do what the Lord wants in this because we don't, there's no way we can know the future. If any of you lack wisdom, since all of you lack wisdom. So it's by wisdom, James is talking about the skill which enables us to live obediently before God in the midst of trials. This result will just absolutely create an incredible life. So often we ask, why me, God? Why now? And and the important question to ask when a trial hits is, how can I understand this trial from God's perspective? How can I navigate this storm in such a way that it brings glory to God? In the midst of a trial, that's a tough one. And yet, there's, all things work together for good to those who believe, right? And so how could, how could the trial that you're in, how could the trial that I'm in be leveraged by God for the good of the kingdom. It's a tough one. How can this trial help me grow in maturity? Asking for wisdom covers what we do know and what we can't know. And so, one of the greatest skills that I admire is someone who's willing to ask God for wisdom and seek wise counsel, but surrender to what, how the Lord and the Holy Spirit leads. I've shared this story several times. It's, it's kind of a silly illustration for this point, but uh, about, I don't know, five or six years ago, I was preaching in a church in Georgia, and I think we had, there were five, five services on Sunday. I was in the third one, and about seven minutes to the invitation, and evidently, I got a little too wound up, and so I, 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 was, I was wailing my hands, as you've seen. I, you know, you can't see me wailing as much as I typically do, because I'm behind the big pulpit here, but I wailed my hands, and my shoulder came out of socket. Like, it, it came out of socket. Like, I, you know, I'm like this, like, and so I'm seven minutes in, and I'm like, ugh, yeah. And, and so uh, bow your heads, close your eyes. Like, I went straight into the invitation with my, my shoulder out. 
Five people accepted Christ. It was awesome. Let me just say, it was, I'm not making it up. It's awesome. My wife was there. Awesome. And, I, and, and, and so I did, did preach the other two messages too. That doctor came up afterwards. He happened to be there and he got me back in and kept on because that's what we do. And uh, so the next day I'm literally at the, at the surgeon's office and he's like, well, how'd, how'd you do it? Preach an injury. It's in my chart. Piedmont Health Center, preaching injury, shoulder surgery, preaching injury. Everywhere I went, they asked me, how'd you do it? All the way through to physical therapy. How'd you do it? And you would think a guy's preaching, why would his shoulder pop out? Like, you know, God, why would you do that to me? I'm not that person, but some people would think that. It was the greatest, greatest six, six weeks of therapy and, and ministry. Led two people to the Lord because of the shoulder surgery. Freaked a lot of people out. How, but God can use something as silly as that, right? So he can certainly use a major health issue. He can certainly use, uh, you know, a, a minor break. He, can, he wants to leverage who we are. That's, that's part of the thing. Think of it this way. The journey in our lives require wisdom, and the destination is all about our faith. Do I demonstrate my faith well enough to share Christ in in, in the good days and the bad days. James clarifies this. So, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously uh, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, he clarifies how we are to ask. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith. Now, that faith, ask in faith, what did we just talk about eight minutes ago? Asking in faith is about allowing your faith to be built during this time of steadfastness, right? So it's dependent upon it. It's, it, it's part of it. If we run from being steadfast, how can we ask in faith if our faith is not being built? Does that make sense? Ask him in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, which, the, again, that steadfastness is completely aligned with that. If we look at Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. In Hebrews eleven six 6, it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that faith, that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We cannot hope to obtain any favor from God or among men if there is no faith in our lives. Regarding the wisdom necessary to guide us, if we are certain it is in accordance with his will, we may come to him with full confidence and entire assurance, and that will, it will be granted. It's, it's there. Verse 7, for the person must not suppose that he will uh, receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded in all his ways, unstable in all his ways. Being, about being double-minded, that's wavering. It's found, uh, this double-mindedness here is found here in James 4, 8, for the first time in Greek literature, for the very first time it's used. He is not referring to hypocrite, but he's referring to someone who's fickle that is wavering back and forth. Literally, he's saying the man has two souls. If we unpack that word that's used there, the man has two souls. An applicable man has no settled principles. He's controlled by passion, influenced by popular feeling, externally motivated, and internally focused. Exactly the opposite of a Christ follower, how a Christ follower should live. It sounds very much like our world today, doesn't it? Think about that. He has two souls, no settled principles, controlled by passion, influenced by popular feeling, externally motivated and internally focused. Being without true wisdom, he perpetually disagrees both with himself and others. As a society, 
we're off track. The good news of that is it allows someone who is walking purely and lives a life of steadfastness and and, and a, a life of faith to stand out and to be seen. And, and that's the value of where we are as a country. But we have to have the courage to stand. We have to have the courage to be steadfast. Steadfast. We have to have the courage to lock our ankles down and, and stay focused and not get brought into all the waves and the storms around us. And then he goes on to verse 9, and we're going to close just with this in just a moment. Let the lowly boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like, flowers, like, the, like a flower in the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises uh, with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those Christ followers, poor and material items, can boast in the wealth of Christ because they have it all. You know, let Christ followers who have material wealth boast in their humiliation. We all know it's temporary. The warning is rather, uh, you know, for them who trust in riches will lose everything. We've got to trust in this faith. And then James lets us up for a moment, puts a bit of courage in us, which I appreciate. In verse 12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. A promise that comes with and through our trials. And that is the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We're to be firm and unwavering. You've got a great role model here. I've met many of you in the church who are firm and unwavering in your faith. You need to flock to those people, learn from those people, sit at their feet. Understand that our trials may set us back. We struggle, we complain sometimes, and sometimes we just grit our teeth and hang on. But we do so with a vision ahead of the reward. Courage for the day that we work toward because of a promise. As we grow in the Christian life, we move from innocent, untested, pure faith to a tested and a refined faith that is found true, a confidence that enables us to be more than victors and to laugh with joy at our trials because we understand that to remain steadfast is a choice, but we are encouraged and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. The crown that we talk about and that we hear is not extra because of the trials that you've gone through. As a Christ follower, you have that crown. You have it already. It's already there. It's a matter of what you do with it. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes for just a few moments, I'll, I'll tell you this. I struggled coming to Christ as a, uh, as a, as a small child. I, I remember waking up in the, in the middle of the night kind of crying and, and, and wondering what was going to happen to me when I die. And I asked my, one of my parents, and they couldn't answer the question. And I struggled for years and years and years. And, you know, as a, as a seven-year-old, I... You know, I remember wanting to be saved. I remember wanting to be with Christ, but I, I, I just couldn't get some questions answered. And so I struggled through my high school years. And finally, there was a point at which I came to a, a, a point in time in my life that was uh, brought about by some very uh, poor decisions that I'd made and, and, quite honestly, some incredible trials and literal trials, as a matter of fact. And, and it, I came to that point where in my life where I said, you know, Lord, if I have never been saved right now, I want to be saved today. I, I surrender my life to you. Uh, I, I commit my life to you. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. And, and, and really and truly, 
my life changed that day. The, the demonstration of my life changed that day. I'd been in and out of churches. I would, I'd tried. I'd gone to Bible studies. I'd, I'd, I'd tried everything that I knew to do, but I just finally had to come to a point in time in my life where I said, hey, you know, if I've never been saved before, I, I've got to get beyond this because there's something greater for me to do. And if I'm struggling with my salvation, how am I going to do anything else for the kingdom? That's literally where I was. So today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, I, I wonder, I wonder if, if in, in here, if there's anybody in here that would say, hey, Don, you know, I, uh, I, 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 I've struggled with my salvation too, and um, would you just pray for me? Is, is there anybody, anybody in here that would say, hey, Don, I, whether you've been in church for 20 years or 40 years or, or two days or an hour, it's irrelevant. Anybody in here, just lift your hand, put it down. Okay, thank you. Others that would say, hey, I, I struggle with my salvation. I'm just not quite sure. Anybody else? Right there. Anybody else? Thank you. I see that. So let me tell you, for me, I want to encourage you today to, to consider this. It's not a transaction. There's not any, a, a magical uh, prayer that can, that can save you. It's, it's your heart of surrender to the Lord and recognizing that you can't lead yourself into this relationship. That truly, truly, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, is, uh, Son of God, and, and came and died on the cross for our sins, and, and you believe that He lived a, a, a sin-free and perfect life, then you can, uh, you can be saved with that. If you believe Jesus is who He says He is. And, and so today, I'm going to leads you in a prayer, whether you had your head, hand lifted up and, and uh, two or three did, and, or maybe you just were kind of not ready to lift your hand. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's a prayer that you've heard before. Again, the prayer's not magical, and prayer doesn't save you. Your heart of surrender to the Lord is what saves you. So you pray silently as I pray aloud right here. Lord, to the best of my ability, I surrender my life to you today. All that I have and all that I don't, I, I give to you. I'm trusting you to be who you said you are. So I place my faith and trust in you. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to serve you every day of my life. I confess my sins and my need for you. Without anybody looking around, I, I wonder if anybody would say, hey, I'd I pray that prayer in a minute today. Would you, I, 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 this is a starting point for you. We'll move forward from there. But anybody, would you just lift your hand and say, hey, I pray that prayer in a minute today? As simple as that was. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Others, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to thank you. I, I, I want to I encourage you, seven, eight people. I want to encourage you in just a moment. I want you to, we're going to have an open time of invitation. Come down front. I'll be down here. Pastor will be down here. Just share that with, with, with Pastor. If you're uncomfortable walking down, make sure you share it with somebody before you leave here today. This is a church. This is a lighthouse. This is a church for people who, who want to have courage put in them so they can put courage in, the, in their community. We exist for you. This is a starting point for you. It's, everything's not fixed from here. This is a great place to start. Then I would say this. Is there someone here that would just say, hey, I'm struggling with that whole faith thing a little bit. I know I'm a believer, but I'm struggling with that whole faith thing a little bit. Would you just pray for me today? Any hands going up for that one? As a church? 
All right, well, I'm going to pray, and then the pastor's going to come, and the choir's going to start singing, and we're going to have a time of commitment, and we encourage you, if you want to join the church or uh, can, uh, come and share that, 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 that you've prayed to receive Christ, uh, that would be awesome today. Just let us know, put courage. Lord, we love you. I thank you for these men and women and boys and girls. I thank you for this family uh, of believers. Thank you for, for Charlie and, Lord, just, just absolutely for just the way that you've worked um, in their lives and for Emily and, and, and the love they have for you and for the church. I pray you bless this day. Thank you for those that made those commitments. Uh, I pray that you put courage in them to begin starting from here, to walk forward from here. In Jesus' name, amen.